Far away from Earth, there is a race of beings who look similar to humans, but aren't human. They consider themselves the supreme race, and are looking for a place to raise gargans, an animal who bears a striking resemblance to the Earth lobster, but grows much, much bigger. And its meat is considered quite the delicacy. Traveling to a distant planet, they think they found the perfect place for their gargan herds, though it probably means an end to the current inhabitants, a race called Earthlings. One of the beings, Derek, doesn't agree with the plan. He runs off after being threatened with torture and meets Betty and her grandfather. Derek and Betty will attempt to save the planet in the 1959 film Teenagers from Outer Space. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. My name is Jeff. Welcome to the 16th episode of Celluloid Days. This is the fourth Monday of the month, and that means we're going to talk about a film that's been Rift on Mystery Science Theater 3000 or one of its related shows. I'm going to tackle the first half and talk about the film itself, and Nancy Fry will be here a little later to talk about the Rift version. The film we're talking about today is Teenagers from Outer Space, and I thought first I would talk about the man responsible for this film, Tom Graff. Or is it Tom Graff? I'm not really sure. He wrote, produced, directed, and even acted in this sci-fi epic. In the film, he plays reporter Joe Rogers, the one with the hat. He was born in 1929 and developed a love of films at an early age. As a teen, he enrolled in the UCLA Theater Arts Program, where he studied filmmaking and theater. While he did poorly in the program, he was able to make a short film called Toast to Our Brothers about fraternity life, and that got a lot of attention. He was even able to get Hollywood actor and comedian Joe E. Brown to appear as he was an alumni of the school. The success of the film allowed him to graduate in 1952. He was described by those who knew him as outgoing, energetic, creative, and a born salesman. After he finished school, he had trouble breaking into the film industry, so he decided to make an independent movie. He made a 20-minute recruiting film for the Orange Coast College, in which Vincent Price narrated. One of the actors in the movie was named Derek Love. Oh, at the time, he was using the name Chuck Roberts, but his birth name was actually Charles Robert Contentler II. Now, Tom, who is openly gay, began a romantic relationship with David. His next film was in 1955, and it was called The Noble Experiment, about an amateur biochemist who invents a get-along pill, and he pours that drug into the city water supply. The Noble Experiment didn't excite the critics, and it did badly. I would like to tell you more, but as far as I can tell, only one print survives, and it's kept in the UCLA Film and Television Archives, and no one has seen it in 40 years. 
Now, during the making of this film, Tom invented a system for doing dialogue. Now, while most films record the actors' voices while they're doing the scenes, there are those that film without sound and have the actors return later to dub in their lines. Tom put a twist on this. He had the actors record their dialogue first and then lip-sync it when the cameras were rolling. When it came to Teenagers from Outer Space, he occasionally used this technique. I'm not quite sure what the advantage of this technique was, but Tom seemed to like it. The following year, he was able to land a job with Roger Corman as his assistant during the filming of Not of This Earth. He even makes a cameo as a car park attendant. Sure have had a lot of cars park here tonight. Yeah, $1. Thank you. It was perhaps working with Corman that gave Tom the idea to finance his own science fiction film. He wrote a script that he called The Boy from Another World, and it was to star his boyfriend, Chuck Roberts, who would now be credited as David Love. David plays Derek in the movie. He had a few friends invest in the film in exchange for roles. Two such people were Brian Pearson who used the name Brian Grant, and his wife, Ursula Hansen. The couple invested $5,000, and both got parts in the film. Brian played Thor, and Ursula played Hilda. Later, Ursula had this to say about Tom in an interview. Tom is very talented. He's a fantastic con artist. He conned everybody into doing his movie for nothing. It was a situation where Tom did what he had to do to get his vision up on the screen. And it was true guerrilla filmmaking. He was able to use the home of a lady named Betty Morgan for three days, free of charge, by pretending he was a UCLA student. One of the main sets was at Bryson Canyon in Hollywood. Bryson Canyon has been the filming locations for over 100 films, including The Vampire Bat in 1933, Flash Gordon in 1936, Robot Monster in 53, Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 56, Attack of the Crab Monster in 57, Ega in 62, Octoman in 71, Army of Darkness in 92, and The Scorpion King in 2002. Also, many TV shows have been shot there as well. And all the high school scenes were shot at Hollywood High School. Some of the notable actors in the film were Don Bender, who played the love interest. Did I know my brother? That's a strange question to ask. Grandpa raised us both since we were kids after Mom and Dad died. Dawn started out as a child actress in mostly uncredited parts. In 1953, she landed a supporting role in the film The Actress, which was based on Ruth Gordon's semi-autobiographical novel years ago. It was directed by George Concur and starred Spencer Tracy, Gene Simmons, and a very young Anthony Perkins. And even though this role was a big boost to her acting career, she planned to give the profession up and settle down. She wanted to get married, but she was recruited by a friend of a friend to take part in Tom's film. Her grandfather is played by the one and only Harvey B. Dunn. Don't worry about me, Betty. I'll leave right away. Goodbye, honey. You might know Harvey from many Ed Wood films. He has a missing index finger on his right hand, and he used to entertain children's parties with his pet bird. You can see Harvey and his bird in the Ed Wood film Bride of the Monster. Harvey also appeared in many feature films, usually as an uncredited performer. 
And, of course, the spacecraft captain is played by Robert King Moody. You have concern for foreign beings over our mission to locate grazing land for our Gargan herds? Recall, it is necessary as a reserve food supply for our people. Our people. Moody is best remembered for playing Starker in the television series Get Smart and for his portrayal as Ronald McDonald in the McDonald commercials from 1969 to 1985. Now, you know, it's easy to sit back and laugh at the film. But I have to say, it wasn't shot all that badly. I mean, Tom knew enough about filmmaking to make an acceptable-looking film, especially when you understand that he made that for only about $20,000. Now, that's the best thing I can say about the flick. The script, the acting, and effects, including the lobster they used, are just plain silly. And from what I've read, the lobster died while filming the movie and they kept it on ice, but by the end it was smelling pretty bad. The aliens' disintegrator ray gun were dime store guns called the Atomic Disintegrator made by Hubley. But I think it was a cool effect the way Tom put a small mirror in the end of the gun barrel and then reflected light back into the camera whenever they were fired. guns in 1954 cost under two bucks, but if you want one today and you have a spare $350, you can find them on eBay. And of course, you know, once people were shot with the ray gun, they were turned into skeletons. Tom only had one skeleton, a single bolted joint skeleton that he used for every shot. And Tom, why didn't you hide the label to the multi-channel sound mixer you used for alien technology? I guess we'll never know. And you might recognize some of the music. It was stock music that's been used by other films and TV shows. You can hear bits of that in the original Night of the Living Dead, as well as the cartoon series Space Angel. Tom called his film The Boy from Out of This World, and then he changed it to The Ray Gun Terror. But when he sold it to Warner Brothers for a reported $28,000, they changed the title to Teenagers from Outer Space. Apparently, Warner Brothers bought the movie because they needed a film to go on a double bill with Gigantus, the fire monster for the drive-in circuit. And, allegedly, none of the actors who helped finance the movie saw a penny of the money. Brian Pearson and his wife, Ursula, sued to get their money back and some of the profits. They had been good friends with Tom when they made the film, but they never spoke to him again once it was done. The film didn't do well and basically got horrible reviews, though some did credit Tom for his ability to make a film on such a small budget. Variety wrote, While Graf may not have made a good picture, he made an interesting one that every now and again smacks of brilliance. The Hollywood Reporter wrote, The acting ranges from bad to no acting at all. 
Tom Graff's production consistently struggles to overcome the disadvantage of his own bad direction, which in turn is gravely handicapped by a script written by himself. Ouch. Now, for those people who have only seen the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version, I will say that the original film is a bit longer. They cut out maybe 10 or 15 minutes of the flick. They had to. I mean, the movie's an hour and a half long, and Mystery Science Theater 3000 without commercials is about an hour and a half long, so something had to give. And Nancy will be here in a minute to tell you more about the plot, but... But let me tell you, the scenes they cut out do nothing to make the film any better. And up till now, this whole story seems a bit charming, funny, almost Ed Woodish. But then, my story takes a dark turn. And it is sad because, although Teenagers from Outer Space was horrible, Tom did show some signs that he knew how to direct a movie. In 1955, Graf placed an ad in the Los Angeles Times. He wrote that God had showed him truth and love, and from now on was to be called Jesus Christ II. He took a second ad out on Christmas Day and listed the dates at several churches that he would perform sermons. The ad was quickly pulled. Later, he attempted to legally change his name to Jesus Christ II. The Christian Defense League didn't like that idea and spoke against it, and his petition was denied. He disappeared for a while, apparently living out on the East Coast, and then in 1964 he worked on a mega-low-budget film called The Wizard of Mars, also known as The Whore of the Red Planet, as an editor. In 1968, he placed an ad in Variety announcing his new screenplay, Orf, was selling for a half million dollars. Now, to put that in perspective, the highest price ever paid for a script in Hollywood at that time was $400,000. A columnist named Joyce Haber attacked him for the ad. He responded by claiming that he had people like Robert Wise and Carl Reiner attached. But when Harbour outed him as Jesus Christ II, that put an end to that. He was arrested a couple of times for disturbing the peace for things like preaching where he shouldn't be preaching. After his second arrest, he jumped bail and headed out east. Brian Pearson said of Tom, Tom Graff was under a lot of stress and strain and I think he completely snapped. The poor man went completely mental not long after the situation with teenagers. He's a very sick person. It's sad because he was a genius in his own way. Tom began running the Evolutionary Data Foundation, a mail-order business that primarily existed to sell a long, plain record of a lecture he gave at the Metropolitan Community Church. In 1970, alone, depressed, out of work, Tom committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning in his garage. He was only 41. Look, I'm sorry that this bit ended on such a downer, but I'm sure Nancy will pick things up when she talks about the Mystery Science Theater 3000 showing of Tom's film. You you cannot escape me. I'll find you. I'll find you. I'll find you. I'll find you. The cricket. 
so quiet. The garden, get back! Where are you from, Derek? A place called Studsville. Not yet confirmed. A beast of seemingly gigantic proportions has been sighted lurking in the hills due northeast of town. Hello, folks. This month, it's my turn to cover the Rift version of a film. Mystery Science Theater 3000's fourth season has some doozies, including Hercules Unchained, the attack of the eye creatures, and today's lucky winner, Teenagers from Outer Space. This movie wants so bad to be a serious cinematic experience, full of thrills and chills, but it's so uneven it just can't get out of its own way. They hired a couple of real actors, but almost all the supporting roles are played by people who have community theater written all over them. The filmmakers did what they could to do things like create a compelling disintegrator ray, but the rest of the effects are so bad as to be comical. The post-zap skeletons, wired together like they were borrowed from a medical college, are bad enough, but the alien livestock gargons are just plain old lobsters. And when they're supposed to be huge, the forced perspective silhouettes just don't sell it. For this episode, I pulled out my beat-up old copy of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 Amazing Colossal Episode Guide. Turn with me to page 67, where MST writer and actor Mary Jo Peel sums up and comments on episode 404, first aired in June of 1992. Quoth Mary Jo, Suspiciously middle-aged teenagers come to Earth to scout out grazing land for their gargons, which are really giant lobsters. Well, there you go. A better synopsis was never written, and yet we will elaborate. This episode was created during the Joel years, so the invention exchange was in full flower. Joel started his entertainment career doing prop-based stand-up comedy, and he used his creative talents to great effect for the show. For this episode, Joel and the bots offer scratch-and-sniff report card for a full immersion grade experience. The Mads, still Dr. Clayton Forrester and TV's Frank in this season. Dr. F predicts the next wave of live comedy, ventriloquism. His spin is that it's going to be based on CPR training props, so his vent figure is a recessa Annie. It doesn't go well. After this first host segment, it's movie sign, and we're off on our cinematic journey with the usual riffing on the opening credits. This film hits the ground running, with a spaceship landing and disgorging... Wow, really old teenagers from outer space. In case you need an obvious bad guy, the captain of this expedition from some far-off planet is so melodramatically evil that he'd twirl his mustache if he had one. When a little dog yaps at the spacecraft, evil Skipper hits him with Ye Disintegrator Ray without batting an eyelash. Just because. In case you're wondering where some of the sound bites that Jeff uses in the intro to this podcast come from, congratulations! 
You'll find one of them around 12 minutes in, in a fine display of acting. When we return to our planet, the High Court may well sentence you to torture. Torture! It's pretty obvious as well who our sympathetic protagonist is going to be. A doe-eyed, square-jawed young man who has concerns about the morality of the mission, which earns him the ire of every other person on the crew. Derek, the sensitive spaceman. It isn't long before Derek has fled the scene, narrowly escaping his crewmate's disintegrator rays and general taunting. Somehow he appears in a nearby town, toting the dog tag from the poor victim of Captain Evil's ray gun. This leads him to the dog's owner, the dishy, chirpy Betty, a cute little wisp of a thing who's so aggressively X-chromosome it's a wonder she doesn't have Mattel stamped on her backside. I mean, just one look at her 50s glam makeup and bangs-and-a-flip helmet hair, and you just know her whole raison d'etre is love interest. If she were better written, she'd have some kind of arc where she wakes up to the dangers of the universe, finds her inner warrior, but alas, her sole function is to utter breathy encouragement or dismay, as needed for a given scene, right up to the end. For the second host segment, we get Joel and the bots pitching a creative moment. So here from our look at the lighter side department, we'd oh. like to introduce a new segment called Real to Real. <laughs> Let's check it out. Move aside, you guys. Oh, thank you. You see, there it is. in real life... Well, you're offered a free room and board until you can get a job and pay back your rents. In real life... If you're late with your rent, your room is padlocked, and you end up living in a refrigerator box. It's a visual gag, with the first real, spelled R-E-E-L, and the second R-E-A-L. It's basically calling out unrealistic TV and movie tropes, especially the kindly, grandfatherly old landlord stereotype, as depicted by Betty's grandfather in the film. As noted by Mary Jo in the episode guide, quote, In real life, your landlord is a butane addict who sneaks into your apartment and looks through your underwear drawer, unquote. Within minutes of being offered a place to stay, with nary a background check or proof of ability to pay, Betty invites our hero, Derek, to a pool party at her rich girlfriend's palatial home. Naturally, as they pull up, one of the bots makes the obligatory Citizen Kane reference. Xanadu, stately home of Charles Foster Kane. Cost, no one can say. Rich girl pal Alice couldn't be more of a stereotype. Bad writing? Bad directing? Bad acting? Or an amalgam of all three? Who knows? They were going for worldly socialite, apparently, but she works it awfully hard. Derek, this is Alice. Derek! Hey, I like that. Come on in, the water's fine. And so and am I. Mm. Trunks, I couldn't find any of course, Derek's fellow aliens don't take his backtalk and rude escape sitting down, and they send the second melodramaticist in command, Thor, to round up our hero. He does this by menacing every single person he encounters, then disintegrating them if they question his motives. Yeah, great way to run a covert op, Thor. Nothing like leaving a trail of skeletonized bodies behind you to not keep off the local law radar. Derek needs to find a scientist on the quick fast, so he and Betty hit up the local community college science teacher for some advice. 
Here, we meet Mr. Science Teacher's secretary come assistant, a statuesque if plain gal who elicits a Beverly Hillbillies reference from the guys. Uh, Miss Hathaway, Jethro wants to be a rock star. <laughs> the TV and general pop culture references in MST Classic are naturally all pre-1990s, perfect for those of us who were kids in the 60s through 80s. This is part of why the newer incarnation of MST just doesn't land for me with its leaning on more current pop culture and more woke topics. The MST writers always referred to their creation as a cowtown puppet show, and that's all it ever aimed to be. The new, overproduced, fast-talking version lost that nostalgia factor, so important to the MST brand, which is kind of sad. But anyway. Meanwhile, back in the movie, Thor catches up with our teen heroes eventually, at the local police station, no less and we get our first shootout. Turns out, mere bullets are actually pretty effective to the dismay of the cranky Thor. So about 42 minutes in, we get the obligatory Monty Python joke when Thor crashes into a doctor's office looking for lead removal. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! Yeah. Amongst our weaponry are fair surprise. The next host segment is a nod to classic movie theater PSAs encouraging good manners or the virtues of a trip to the concession counter. Joel and the bots jettison some trash into space and sing a little jingle as the flotsam floats towards the space-borne trash bin. This is low-tech FX at its finest. Visible strings and all, which is totally on brand. Take that, ILM. Then it's back to our story. The Doctor, Derek, and Betty have escaped, leaving Thor to presumably bleed out. Sadly, a very efficient nurse arrives and efficiently fixes up the woozy Thor, who promptly kidnaps her, dang it. Nobody ask for a ray gun. You put that right away. I just love how movie and TV bandages immediately heal people. It's such a trope. A typical cat-and-mouse series of near-misses and chases ensues, and we get Betty's guy pal, cub reporter Joe, patiently residing in the friend zone, inspecting the erstwhile spaceship landing site with a plainclothes law enforcement officer of some type. These guys are just plain stymied by all the shenanigans and goings-on and whatnot. There's more to it than that, Joe. There's something behind this, something we don't understand. Like the new man. The weapon he uses, it's unheard of. Blasting flesh right off the bone. Really a waste. Look at that yeah. tree over there. Used it for target practice by the looks of it. Yeah, it's pretty far-fetched, Bob. Meanwhile, Thor speeds their way with the kidnapped nurse, supposedly to rendezvous with the returning spaceship, which apparently went to round up a big fleet carrying nasty gargons with which to overrun the planet. We cut to the car's interior. Menopause can feel like a speeding car chase. I've got a headache this big and it's got this movie written all over it. Whoa, he shouldn't be driving without corrective lenses. You know, I just love that nurse. She doesn't appear until the third act, but she's the kind of decisive go-getting heroine I wish the wimpy Betty could have been. Instead... We get Betty's baby-voiced simpering, clinging to Derek every time something icky happens. Meanwhile, Action Nurse just handles whatever comes her way, including escaping the clutches of the evil Thor by bailing from a speeding car just before it careens off a cliff. 
Not that we need a remake of this film, but if somebody chose to do so, I definitely want her introduced early on and made the chief protagonist. I could totally see her played by Celia Ward or Frances McDormand. Meanwhile, back at the rooming house with Joe and Gramps, the final action sequence kicks off with one of those I thought she was with you type exchanges. Why aren't you in the cellar, Gramps, with Betty? What makes you think Betty's in the cellar? She's, out <laughs> She's not buried down there with her mother. Everybody's I... supposed to take shelter. The monster from the cave, it's approaching the town. Huh? Hmm? Then that's where they must have gone. Those crazy kids. Joe, we've got to try and find them. You mean they... Yes. yes. Come on, then. Let's go. Then we're off to a series of interior and exterior moments, which are weird because the actors keep indicating that it's nighttime when the exterior scenes were clearly shot during the day. Of course, every time we cut to a car interior, it's black as pitch outside the windows, with the actors lit from below with whatever portable lights film crews had before LEDs. I understand shooting day for night, but this is pretty bad. When the monster, the aforementioned Gargon, arrives, apparently grown to the size of a whale in 24 hours, we're treated to the worst Foley work since the phone ring noise in Monster Agogo, which is to say... It's another person making a somewhat less-than-convincing sound that just sounds like a human making a less-than-convincing sound. <laughs> and cue the monster Oops. rampage. Or not. We get a montage of some air raid sirens and various people reacting to something off-camera. Up first Wednesday of the month. The laconic Midwestern vibe is strong in the Joel episodes. I was raised by expat Scandinavian Midwesterners, so that low-key skepticism is very homey for me. Whenever they do a Scandahoovian bit, they just sound like my grandparents. Oh, yeah. Or, woofda. Oh, I just don't know. Well, that's different. The heroic Derek saves the day, destroying the alien fleet in an epic moment of self-sacrifice. In case the audience is unclear about the epic self-sacrifice, we're treated to a hazy still of his face in the clouds, as if he's smiling down on us from heaven. It's his graduation photo. Oh. Killed in Vietnam. You know, he first had one taken with his hockey uniform, but he opted <laughs> for that one. Sing us out of here, Derek. <laughs> Many of the Mercury players have never been in films before. Here are some of them. Well, let's go home. I got a room to rent out. Look to this day, young graduate, as you move on into your new life. This moment is bad enough in a 50s-era campy sci-fi thriller, but when Stephen Summers did the same thing in the 2004 action flick Van Helsing, it was pretty inexcusable in an already bad film. Seriously, that film starts out great, then rapidly degenerates into bizarreness. Waste of a good cast, but I digress. We end with the final host segment, starting with a kicky fashion show from Joel and the Bots. They take a page from the film, modeling the latest in snazzy outfits made from feed store jumpsuits and gaff tape. 
After this, they read a letter, something they abandon in later seasons. I always enjoyed those, since most were from kids who would often include their original artwork inspired by the show. It was always fun to hear how much the show impacted other people's lives. Meanwhile, down in Deep 13, Dr. F has taken Rasessa Annie on a dinner date. She's not very talkative, but he tries to impress her. So have I told you I have a man up in space? No, literally, I have a man up in space. The date ends badly. Naturally, the stinger after the credits is Captain Evil with his signal line referencing the likelihood of torture for Derek. What a jerk. You can find this Rift version on Shout Factory with commercials, or just look on YouTube for somebody's pirated version if you hate commercial breaks as much as I do. This movie is perfect for riffing, and I think this episode is a good example of some of the best writing Best Brains ever did. Pop yourself some popcorn and check it out sometime. Alice Guy writes, directs, and produces one of the first narrative films ever made. Alice is one of the first to utilize many film techniques, including close-ups, hand-tinted color, and synchronized sound. Alice founds her own company, where she directs and manages all aspects of production. Following a two-decade career comprised of a thousand films that she wrote, directed, or produced, Alice disappears from filmmaking. How could such an important figure in the birth of cinema not be known? A little bit before I go. You know, I always wondered what people like Ed Wood, Coleman Francis, or Tom Graff all three who died early because of their own issues, would have thought if they lived to see their films get the notoriety they have today. I mean, for the most part, it's probably not the fame they would have wanted, but uh, would they have embraced it like Tommy Wiseau and The Room? Or would it have been devastating to their fragile egos? I guess we'll never know. I want to thank Russell Devlin for providing a lot of information on Teenagers from Outer Space. It's always appreciated. And of course, Nancy, I really enjoyed listening to your take on the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version. It's always wonderful to hear the perspective you put on things. So next Monday, we're back to a film history lesson. We're going to talk about the French pioneer filmmaker Alice Guy Blachet often considered the first filmmaker to make a narrative fiction film, as well as the first woman to ever direct a film. Hey, listen up. We have a Facebook page. Come on and join it. It's a great place to leave your comments. It's called Celluloid Days. Come on, be one of the cool kids. Join our group. We also have a Twitter account. It's at celluloid underscore days. And I've been putting up regular posts lately on uh, Twitter, so follow me there. And, you know, I'm looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. You can use Facebook or Twitter, or you can email me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. You can even email me just to say hi. I'll, I'll, I'll email you back. Now, one last thing, if you could leave a review at wherever you download this podcast or stream it, that would be fantastic. I would be forever grateful. Again, I want to thank Nancy and Russell for contributing, and to all of you who listen and repost the show, thanks so much. Take care. I'll be back next Monday. Bye.
They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multi-pass. Lena, uh, multi-pass. You know the small You're stupid minds. Stupid, stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Yes, I can.